Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We have such a fun and informative episode for you. Erin Bowdy is a wife and mom to two children and considers herself a behaviorist by trade who is fascinated by human behavior. She's a self-employed business strategist, change agent, and development coach who focuses on behavior change and social marketing. She integrates the Enneagram model as a framework for individuals to understand the why behind their behavior. She mentions in the episode that rather than categorizing what we do, she is more interested in understanding why we do it. If we can find supportive things around why, we can actually shift into behavior change with less stress. The Enneagram is a functional tool that helps Erin accomplish goals with her clients. Erin has a bachelor's degree in human development, master of public health, and PhD in industrial and organizational psychology with a focus on personality as a framework for coaching and development. She is also a certified Enneagram teacher and trainer, as well as an accredited Enneagram professional from the International Enneagram Association. In this episode, we cover so many fascinating topics. Erin even defines each of the Enneagram numbers. Do you know what number you are? Either way, keep listening. You may be surprised. Cindy and I were just talking before you hopped on how excited we are to dive into all of this, talk Enneagram with you and, and all the things. We're, we're really, really excited. <laughs> we usually like to get to know our guests before we dive in and just start picking their brain and, and everything. So I'm going to start with a few get to know you questions. So would you please fill in the blank? Motherhood is? I would say the best and hardest job I've ever had. Ditto. Ditto. Yes. How many kiddos do you have? Two? Two. Two. Yeah. Okay. And their ages? Seven, almost eight, and almost six. Well, I completely agree with you in that. What do you value most in a friendship? I think in my world, uh, patience. We have such a fun and informative episode for you. Erin Bowdy is a wife and mom to two children and considers herself a behaviorist by trade who is fascinated by human behavior. She's a self-employed business strategist, change agent, and development coach who focuses on behavior change and social marketing. She integrates the Enneagram model as a framework for individuals to understand the why behind their behavior. She mentions in the episode that rather than categorizing what we do, she is more interested in understanding why we do it. If we can find supportive things around why, we can actually shift into behavior change with less stress. The Enneagram is a functional tool that helps Erin accomplish goals with her clients. Erin has a bachelor's degree in human development, master of public health, and PhD in industrial and organizational psychology with a focus on personality as a framework for coaching and development. She is also a certified Enneagram teacher and trainer, as well as an accredited Enneagram professional from the International Enneagram Association. In this episode, we cover so many fascinating topics. Erin even defines 
each of the Enneagram numbers. Do you know what number you are? Either way, keep listening. You may be surprised. Uh, patience and being constant, uh, having two littles, one with high needs. I can't always show up in the way that I would have been able to previously. And so that grace is so appreciated. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, do you have friends in your adult life that you've met in your adult life or are your friends more of a carryover from your youth? So I've lived in six states, seven states in my life. And we moved a ton as a kid. Uh, and so I don't really have childhood friends anymore because you'd be there for a couple of years and then leave and, mm, uh, yeah. you know, not stay in touch. So almost all of my friends today are either college or career. Oh, okay. And your career, you haven't, well, we'll get to that. I want to know if you bounced around in your career because <laughs> I did. Yes, <laughs> but I did. Just, well, we'll find out about that. What is the most daring thing you've ever done? Quit my corporate job. Oh, yeah. That's tough. <laughs> that is really tough. So had you worked your way up the corporate mm -hmm. ladder and then yeah. you're at the you're more at the top and you're like, nope, don't like I, it. I was in line for a VP position. Um, I was running three divisions of a healthcare system and was pulled in a ton of different directions. My husband, my husband works in counterterrorism. His job actually is like very important. And then we found out that Eleanor was on the autism spectrum and I just had had a newborn. And I was like, I can't be a good leader, run teams, go after a promotion, support my husband, be here for my kids. I was like, something has to give. And you know, obviously the career was the easiest thing to let go of, but it really hurt my ego. It oh, was yeah. like, uh, you know, I'd worked so hard for this. I had a graduate degree, like, you know, giving up a big paycheck, all of the things. And so in quitting, I started a PhD thinking like, that'll help me when I want to go back and sort of fill the gap. And in the five years that I've been out, I'm like, I'm never going back. Right. <laughs> Well, it'll be, I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit more because we're going to dig into your life and your professional uh, career and how you got to where you are today. So hold on. Okay. <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self? Do it for you. I, oh. I learned so much as a kid and a young adult to do things for other people and it's taken me into my fourth decade on earth for me to prioritize what I would want. That's, I love it. Do it for <laughs> you. Now, do you say that to your kids? Do you say something in that line, like a motto that you have? For yeah. Them? Yeah. We, we really prioritized their emotional regulation and their autonomy. Uh, it makes parenting hard. <laughs> mm, oh my gosh, yes. Um, because we have very strong, clear kids. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wouldn't change it. Yes. Oh, I, I really do like that. Do it for you. <laughs> it's perfect. Erin, I have had the pleasure of sitting in on a couple different workshops with you. And it is clear when you speak that you have a passion for people and really for the motivations that drive our behaviors. So you went to school and received a bachelor's degree in human development, 
Master of Public Health. And as you just mentioned, you're currently finishing your PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. You're, you're doing it all. You have all of this background. And I can only imagine, I, I remember from one of the workshops you mentioning just being in the thick of your PhD studies mm-hmm. and just how, how much it is and not seeing the light of day. And it's, it's a lot, but you have a lot of background. You have a lot of information to give us. Would you describe for us the Enneagram and share how you became interested in studying and using it? Because it's a big part of your work and what you do. Yeah. So I consider myself a behaviorist by trade. I'm fascinated by human behavior, what we do. That's a lot of what human development and public health are all about is to understand behavior and create programs and interventions and solutions that help people manage, you know, unhelpful behavior or step into what might in a context be quote unquote more healthy, right? And so through that work, I got exposed to a lot of tools, Myers-Briggs, the DISC assessment, strength finders, the color profile, all these kinds of things, which are great in categorizing behavior in a certain context. But when I discovered the Enneagram was about 12 years ago, it was the only tool that I saw illuminating the motivation of a behavior, the why, that got into sort of the deep psychology around coping and safety and and what feeling secure feels like, sort of the bottom tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I was like, whoa, this is different. This is so much more than categorizing what we do and more interested in understanding why we do it. And if we can find supportive things around the why, we can actually shift into behavior change uh, with less stress and less like, you know, emotional, physical agitation, right? Less pull on our nervous system. And so it made a lot of sense to bring it into my work. And at the time I was working a lot with leaders and helping them make uh, effective you know, influence on other people and the recognition around the Enneagram helped understand that if you don't have that ability to influence yourself because you're not clear about what you're doing, it is really hard to then influence other people from a way that is supportive of them. And so the tool gave light to the individual, but then also to the team, which I loved. Yeah, there's there's certainly power in in knowledge and self-awareness, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of what you're you're saying this gives you. Yeah. So you mentioned 12 years. So for the past 12 years, the Enneagram has been a part of your life and your work. It seems to have impacted you in a significant way. I don't think it would be a jump to say that. How would you say it's changed you as a person and also as a parent? Because this is yeah. largely moms listening. So how has studying and using the Enneagram change you in that realm too? So I was introduced to the Enneagram before I was married and before I was a parent. And I found out that I, sh- I couldn't, I the theoretically couldn't have kids. And so was like moving through the adoption process and um, spent about 18 months getting approved and meeting birth families and all of that. And 
at the time, I was really working on managing some of the medical things that were going on with me and my husband being a huge, you know, partner, supportive partner. He's like, we'll do it together. And so we were really monitoring what we were eating and being thoughtful about our rest and all of those things. And magically and taking fabulous care of my body, I got pregnant and I didn't find out until I was almost 13 weeks that I was pregnant. And uh, I had a lot of stress and anxiety around having to stop the adoption process in Ohio, where we lived at the time. You couldn't adopt and have a newborn. Um, they, they sort of put some space from it. So we had to quit that journey. And having that taken away from me sort of created a lot of stress. And then I also was really sick. I was throwing up mm, every day, 10, 15 times a day. And uh, I started to have a really high level of anxiety. And it was really this time in my life where the Enneagram became a tool that helped me see myself, know myself. I started in therapy. I started working with a therapist who was also trained in the Enneagram. She's a part of the school that I studied under. So I was already trained at this point, but it, it was more intellectual until I needed it to heal all of this grief that I was experiencing and all of this being sick and, you know, these ideals around pregnancy being this beautiful time. And it wrecked me really. And so I really leaned into understanding myself in a new way there and, and practicing what I knew for the first time, really. What, what number are you? I fixate at type seven. Okay. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of the uh, physiological tools to handle these hard, big feelings. So it made me do some work. <laughs> so what does it mean when you say you, you knew your Enneagram number and it really helped you to do the work that you needed to do around this? How, how did it help you, heal you? Yeah. So when we get clarity around our number, we get clarity around the most limited version of ourselves. The construct of our personality, our type, is really like how we learn to cope as a kiddo. And it really makes us small. It really sort of takes away some of these other tools and resources. And so knowing the number helped me understand what I look like when I'm not at my best, really. I, I joke and I say my seven's showing. I'm like, whoo. And so in that moment, in that time, I could see the sort of map of me and, and how I function. It's a complex model and, and it requires, you know, some more time to get into all the details, but to understand where I sit on the model and know that I'm overly intellectual and I use information as a way to feel safe also helped me understand that I didn't have a good connection to my body and I didn't have a good connection to my emotional regulation. And so in that time, I was in therapy and it felt like a huge stretch for me. Um, it was a really new muscle to work out. And so my therapist recommended that I start doing yoga. Uh, as a way to really get in my body so that I could handle the big feelings that I wasn't good at yet. And it was the best advice I'd ever received, but it was because we both could see what I was using, what I wasn't using in terms of um, my Enneagram type. That's fascinating. There's just, even in what you've just said, you can tell that there are so many advantages to knowing mm -hmm. your number. 
Uh, and we'll explore that in just a minute, which I'm excited about. I'm clapping here. <laughs> but you alluded or you actually said earlier that you're a mom of two. Mm-hmm. According to your website called Living the Enneagram, one of your children is neurodivergent and one is neurotypical. Can you walk us through what that looks like for your family and for you as a mom? Yeah. So I often say I have two degrees. I'm working on the third. I have a deep level of knowledge around this tool and behavioral theory. And I have not learned a a lick of anything until I became a mom of these two kids. Like they have really taken what I know into an embodied practice experience. And I, and I do believe in what's unfolding or what's kismet or what's universal or what you, what, what sort of faith that you have that all of the work that I did was to lead me to being especially Eleanor's mom. You know, she has really complicated uh, challenges. She's got a sensory processing disorder, so she can't feel her body in the typical ways that kids do. She doesn't experience pain. When you don't have pain, you don't develop fear. You don't understand risks and consequences. She has an anxiety disorder. She's got a regulatory disorder and she's got OCD. And I have to practice being incredibly present with her and patient and in the moment and being able to like hold space and regulate. She often has to regulate on me or with me And it was like, oh, I have all this knowledge. This is what it looks like to practice it. And so I often talk about like knowing your Enneagram type is like getting a gym membership. This kind of work is actually lifting the weights around it. And she was the weights that I learned to to lift and learned about trauma-informed parenting. And I bring that into my corporate work. Because, you know, it's so valuable to how we need to process in the world. And so it changes everything because she's so unpredictable and her needs are so all-consuming. Silly stuff. We went to a birthday party on Saturday. You know, my son got invited and my husband's working. And it turned into a three-hour meltdown for Eleanor afterwards. Just a simple kid's birthday party turned into so much effort by us. And so you have to sort of learn to weigh the risk and reward. I don't want my kids to be in a bubble their whole life. And wow, that asked a lot of all three of us to manage how hard it was for her to just be in that environment. So it's changed everything. um, And I wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that he was invited and she had to go because your husband wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And so by putting her in that social setting, it really dysregulated her and it took you a long time to, to get her settled and, and whatnot. Exactly. And so do you know the Enneagram number of your children? Not yet. Um, I'm definitely watching, uh, developmentally kiddos, tend to find their personality construct that gets settled into it somewhere between the ages of seven and 11. And then there's some pretty decent tools that can help kids start to name and narrate their own type. I have a kid's book that is animals 
and they're all planning to throw a party and they're all in the archetypes of each of the Enneagram types. And my niece and my nephew who are 15 and 17, when they were 10 and 12, read the book and picked out their types like, oh, I'm a one or I'm a seven. And so I read it to Eleanor. She'll be eight this year. I read it to her and she narrowed it down to three. I was like, are there any of these animals that you can relate to? And she picked three and sure thinks she's onto something with, mm. you know, the, bu the buckets that she was leaning into. And so I think kids need to be the ones to determine their types. Um, but I think what we can do as parents is hold the, pic the big picture and the pattern and parent to the pattern, right? And regardless of her type, I can support the pattern that I see and, and help her find some tools and some resources in those things. Because at this point, there's still a possibility I can influence, not that I can decide who she's going to be, but I can maybe influence how strongly this pattern carries into, you know, her adulthood. Mm -hmm. What is the name of the book? It's like the wind and the meadow and the something. I'll send you the link to it on okay. Amazon. And we'll link um, to it in the show notes. Yeah. The book like originated in Europe. And so the title's a little funny, um, but it's a really good book. So I'll get you the link. That sounds great. As a mom of two neurodivergent children myself, I relate very much to what you're saying about the intensity and the regulation and the time. And I know that that is also going to touch a lot of moms that listen to this podcast. Guess what? Everyone has a spine and nervous system and can benefit from chiropractic care. Anytime there is stress on your nervous system, your body may not function properly. Many people are unaware that children can benefit from chiropractic care. They assume that seeing a chiropractor is just something you do when you're an adult dealing with a bad back, stiff joints, or poor posture. True story, that was me for the longest time. For example, as a newborn, you might struggle to latch or breastfeed. As a toddler, you might experience digestive issues that threaten proper nourishment. As a teen, poor posture, heavy backpacks, contact sports, and normal growing pains can lead to your child experiencing headaches, scoliosis, PMS, back pain, and ADD, ADHD. I definitely wish I had known about chiropractic care when I was a teen. Additionally, as a pregnant woman, you might have persistent lower back pain, which chiropractic care can be a huge help for. Believe it or not, these issues are all related to your nervous system and they can all improve with chiropractic care. Chiropractic care aims to improve the function of your spine and nervous system so that your body can function at its best. Don't wait for the pain. Contrary to popular belief, you don't have to be in pain to seek out chiropractic care. In fact, pain is typically the last symptom that is expressed when the spine isn't in proper alignment. Think of chiropractic care as a healthy lifestyle habit. The same way you brush your teeth to prevent cavities, you should go for regular chiropractic adjustments to promote better spine and nervous system health. I've never thought of it that way. Davis Family Chiropractic serves families in the Raleigh area. They want to help you discover the root cause of your problem, address it, and give your body the best tools it needs to heal. Davis Family Chiropractic focuses on prenatal and pediatric chiropractic care, and their doctors are both certified in the Webster technique, which can be helpful throughout pregnancy or simply as an intervention if a baby is breech. Prenatal chiropractic care helps to keep mom comfortable during pregnancy and helps to get your baby in the best possible position for birth. Davis Family Chiropractic sees kids of 
all ages from birth through teenagers to make sure that your child is developing properly and adapting to life. Visit Davis Family Chiropractic at daviscaironc.com and on social media at daviscaironc. Improve your family's health before it becomes an issue. One thing I'd love to ask you right now is, and I struggled with this, is determining what support and how to get my children help. So it Mm -hmm. all started in the school system and when to test them in school, when to test them uh, privately, and then who to take them to an OT, a PT, a PT, uh, you know, all of these different professionals. What, what did you find helped you? I think the beginning for me was trusting me, you know, and, and that's, that's a learning curve for me is in the othering that I've done my whole life. Eleanor shifted that for me and, and created a tenacity in me around my own inner authority and my own trust. And so at the beginning of the journey, we got bounced around a lot. Mm, Um, Yes. So uh, what made Eleanor unique is that she used to bang her head and she used to bang her head about six or seven hours a day. She had bruising all over her cranium. She would do it in the middle of her sleep. She'd try to find this, she was trying to get her sensory needs met and she was nine, 10, 11 months old and just cracking her head against her crib or her cot at daycare. And so I had that to sort of say, this isn't typical. Someone needs to give us answers. And we just were really persistent. And we, um, I, I sort of, maybe this is my type seven energy. I didn't take no for an answer. And so we saw double the amount of unhelpful providers as we, as we saw good Mm -hmm. providers and we found some wins. We found some really great people because we didn't give up and we kept going until somebody saw her the way we saw her. And now she's got this community of care that is just absolutely beautiful. But, you know, we went to a developmental pediatrician who's the leading in the state. And he said, oh, she's fine because she's cute. So uh, we've had- No way. Yes. Yeah. And we paid, you know, $500 out of pocket to have someone tell us that. So we've had every spectrum. Oh my gosh. And I'm at this place where we just try everything. You know, she does OT, she does cranial sacral therapy. She's done chiropractic. She's done OT. She's done PT. Um, We've done some psychology services until we figured out what was working for her and we could sort of curate the the right resources and the right tools it took a lot of practice and a a lot of watching and trial and error it's like a pair of jeans like Mm. we don't put on a pair of jeans that doesn't feel good if my butt cracks showing I'm taking these things off right (laughs) Right. and so it was just this mentality of like I'm in the dressing room with 30 pairs of jeans and I'm just going to keep trying them on until I find something that works And when it works, we held on to it really tight. And so she's, we've made some investments. We have a, we're very, very privileged. You know, we have a sensory gym in our basement. She's got an oscillating table in her bedroom. We've been able to make commitments for her that get her what she needs. And now she's got the tools to say, she gets up in the morning and she goes and sits on her oscillating table, you know, and she's doing what she needs for her body. There's a flip side to it though, because she'll tell me you're not in charge of my body. I am. And Mm. I'm like, okay, you're not wrong, but I really need you to listen to me. (laughs) Right. 
Yes. Well, it sounds to me as you're talking that an important lesson that you've learned along the way is to not give up, stay diligent and continue advocating. Mm -hmm. Is there any other messages or important lessons that you'd like to share with mothers who might be raising their own neurotypical or neurodivergent children? Yeah, I think that's the other part of my story is my son, Lewis. We had heard so much um, in our journey about siblings of neurodivergent kids feeling less than or overlooked. And so we made a very conscious um, point to make sure that Louie had as much room in our life as Eleanor does. And sometimes that happened at her expense. Sometimes that meant that she... Um, had a meltdown where I couldn't, you know, navigate it as well as I would have liked because he needed something. I mean, there's this constant trade-off in it, but so much of what we've learned about parenting Eleanor well works for Louie too. He, you know, he is an emotionally expressive kid. He wants to be seen and known and loved. He wants to be safe just because his brain processes the information Typically, everything we've ever learned about trauma-informed parenting is just as effective on him as it is on her. Uh, she just might need more of it. Mm, that's great. And, and your son is younger than your daughter. Your daughter's eight yeah. and your son is yep. six. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really good message. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really interested in helping to provide resources for parents that may not have the privilege of the different resources. And so Chrissy and I really try hard to make sure that we find providers that we can put on our website that can help in that regard to direct them. And of course, you're always available for recommendations as well. So that's always good to know. Yeah, that's what I, I think I fell in love with the ideas that I saw on your website and the community that you're building and the providers is that, it was really hard for us to navigate. And I really would like it not to be that hard for the next mom. And there's just not enough of this sort of collective um, sharing. And so I love what you're creating because we don't all have to suffer. Yeah. And there's so much power in sharing. There's so much that can be gotten on both sides, the, for Mm -hmm. the person sharing and for the person hearing. So thank you. We we definitely appreciate your kind words. You are dedicated to lots of things. So (laughs) more time, more energy, more capacity, more inspiration, more resilience. Yes. Sign me up. I'm here. I'm in it. Let's do this. (laughs) I need all of these things in my life. These are all the things that you help people find through your work with the Enneagram and behavior change theory. Most of us aren't taught how to break unhelpful personality habits and build better systems. I'm 100% thinking of myself as I say this. Mm-hmm. I I know my own failings when it comes to my personality. It's like front and center, especially when you become a parent. It's like front and center in your face every day. But I I don't. I I don't know how to build a better system. I'm I'm trying. I'm in therapy. I read all the books, you know, but it's it's hard when you're in the thick of it to know how mm-hmm. to navigate through that, out of that. 
So you help people, you help people make lasting changes in their behaviors and their lives instead of ending up more stressed out and feeling defeated and running on empty. So one of the things on your website says that using your proven framework, you help people become the best version of themselves. When I read that, I immediately was like, oh yes, I want that. I wonder what that looks like in Mm -hmm. your mind when you say the best version what does the best version of someone look like? Uh, I think it's the expansion into our own unique potential. We spend most of our lives uh, responding to conditioning, whether that's personality conditioning, whether that's family values or the church that we attend or school or academics, right? Like, uh, you know, prioritizing intellect and going to college over like other kinds of skills. And so oftentimes we get really ground and really rooted in these behavioral patterns that keep us in our limitation in this pattern or construct that is a smaller version of us. And so when we know how to break up with that, we have more room in us to be what we choose to be, or there's more fullness in it. And so what, there's almost 8 billion people in the world. And I think that means there's 8 billion expressions of our best selves. You know, it is unique to us. It's hard to understand what that uniqueness could look like when I'm navigating so much external pressure. Do you feel that you have reached a point of being the best version of yourself? Or is it something that you have to constantly work at? I think it's an evolution. It's like a shedding, you know? And I think that's kind of like kids too, where you you get them figured out, like they're two and they're finally taking naps and they're eating food (laughs) and then they go and change on us. And you're like- They keep doing that. (laughs) I gotta do this again, you know? I think that's people, not just kids, but adults learn to subscribe to performance culture, grind culture, hustle culture, perfectionism around our parenting and being a mom and altruistic and all the things that we do, that we quit evolving. Uh, We quit leaping to the next level. And so I, I don't think our best self is a finish line. I think our best self is an evolution and a shedding. And the ho- the hope that I have is that at the end of my life, that is the best version of me that I've known. But every season, every learning, every opportunity, I discover a little bit more about what I'm capable of. I absolutely love the idea of just constantly striving to better and improve yourself. I, I think that that is a, a beautiful part of life. That's a beautiful part of living in our world. And maybe striving isn't the right word here either. That feels a little too, there's probably a number associated with that. (laughs) I know Um, what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I think of it more like a horizontal expansion versus mm -hmm. like an achievement on this ladder of I'm getting better. It's more like I'm getting, I'm becoming more open. I'm becoming more whole, more me, more whatever, whatever sort of resonates. And so the ability to, you know, keep making room for more, it's work. 
I love that. Thank you for that clarification. I have a whole new picture in my head now <laughs> of, of your response to that. Thank you. I, I really do like that. I think that that's a beautiful thing to, to strive for. Very, I, I, I had pictures of Buddha in my head. It's very, <laughs> very, very Buddha-like. <laughs> Which struggles do you find come up most frequently, particularly with moms? Like you help mm -hmm. people work through all this and navigate this. There has to be things that come up time and time again that when you're working with someone. Yeah, I think a lot of the comparing mind, you know, the there's so much information out there that says this is the way to do things. It doesn't matter which industry that you're in, right? Medical, parenting, fitness, wellness, you know, academia, business, this is the way to do things. And I think what that often does is create a gap around where I am and where these things are. And then what do I use to motivate myself between this, where the version of me today and the version of me that maybe I want to be tomorrow. And most of us use what I call false fuels to manage that gap. We use self-doubt or criticism or shame or, you know, comparing mind. We use striving or pushing beyond our capacity, ignoring our intuition to keep us going. And so a lot of what I help people do is identify their false fuel and support it in their bodies in really meaningful ways. Like our personality construct is tied to our nervous system and we can't just change that. Uh, we can't just intellectually say, I'm going to be this different thing. I have to sort of re-engineer my patterns around what stresses me out and how I support that stress in order to have enough room to step into these new patterns and new behaviors. And so I think moms in general are particularly hard on themselves and, and hold, themselves, hold themselves to really high standards. And so helping people break those rules, right? It feels really wild to me, like, <laughs> to say like, you know, yeah, we're going to break up with this. What would that look like for you? Oh, so powerful. Yeah. I love breaking the rules, especially in the mom world. <laughs> there's, there's just so, so many of them. Could you, you mentioned yoga. Could you share some of your own personal systems that you use on a regular basis to kind of beat the stress and bring more calm to your own life? Yeah, they've, they've evolved as my life has changed. Um, a younger version of me was very physically active. I used to race triathlons, so a lot of intense working out and lifting weights and running. And so yoga was a way that I uh, taught my body to slow down when I was mm -hmm. physically active. And I do think it's really important for people to understand their energetic releases and type helps us do that. I'm a high energy assertive type. And so of course it was natural for me to go to high energy coping places. Mm -hmm. um, and so I needed to learn how to come down from that and practice that. And so yoga was great at helping me learn how to do that. I have had four ankle reconstruction, constructive surgeries and had my ankle wow. fused. And so in the past two years, I've had to relearn how to walk, which for somebody who is high active, high energy, it like, it, it was a lot. <laughs> and so my tools have had to change and I've had to learn 
slowness and stillness and grounding, you know, breath work, my feet on the ground, um, more meditation, understanding my sensory responses and, and getting overloaded. So I think the most important thing I can encourage to people is to quit quickly if the tools that you're using aren't relieving stress for you. Uh, because there's infinite ways for us to cycle through the stress response. And, you know, what works for me may not work for you. Uh, and so to keep trying things, borrow them from other people and then quit them if they don't work. That comparison of, well, it works for my friend to get up every morning yeah. and journal with her coffee. And that just doesn't work for me. So I very much identify with what you just said about being high. What did you say? High energy, high yeah. act, active. That's me. And I know that I need more of the yoga, meditation, quiet things mm-hmm. in my life. But that being said, I feel like most of the people I know probably fall under that to some degree, just because of the world we live in. It, it's mm-hmm. a very quick moving, fast paced, high pressure world. Mm-hmm. Are there people that are I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are there that are just slower and they would, what they would need more dance classes. Like they would need to go to something more active. Yeah. And so when you think about types, there are assertive types, the threes, um, seven and type eights are like the go act life twos, uh, ones and sixes are compliant. They're more energetically in the middle navigating expectations and then fours, fives, and nines are more passive types. They sort of pull back from things and may need to process. And so our energetic stops and starts may look different based on those movements. And so someone who sits at a four or a nine might take a long time to start something. And I hear so often from those types, the shame around, I'm slow, I'm lazy, I'm, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. It just takes you a longer lane to get started. And so the work is teaching how to speed up where it's appropriate, just like with those active types, it's teaching how to slow down where appropriate. You think about it like a gas and a brake, and we just have to learn to navigate our speeds in a way that works for us. Whether it's your first positive pregnancy test or you're a veteran parent, a new chapter is beginning as you add to your family. The Beginnings Center serves families through the transitions of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. They have birth doulas who walk alongside you through pregnancy and offer continuous support through labor. I actually had a doula for each of my birth experiences and it was extremely helpful. Me too. I couldn't agree more. The Beginnings Center actually also offers postpartum doula services to help you heal, smooth your baby's transition to life outside the womb and facilitate whole family bonding with day and night availability. Let's emphasize night here too. I have friends that have used a postpartum doula and have raved about how helpful it was for them. The Beginnings Center serves all families and has specialty training in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, which is crucial for parents in those early postpartum weeks. The Beginnings Center also offers infant feeding consultations, which allow you to prepare for baby's arrival with an individualized feeding plan and walk alongside you through any struggles you may have with feeding your baby. They also have groups and classes, which allow you to make meaningful connections with other parents as you get informational and emotional support. Be sure to mention Mama Needs a Moment to get 10% off an infant feeding consultation. Head to thebeginningscenter.com. Again, that is the beginnings 
center.com to learn more and contact Madeline today. I bet had this underlying question this whole time. So my first question is, are you born with your Enneagram number? Like, does it ever shift? Is this what you carry essentially your whole life? Because you had talked about children, you had talked about them basically settling into their personality within a certain age range. Can you talk just a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we're born a blank slate, right? These are, and our kiddos are born with a temperament. Like they just kind of are something, Mm. um, and so, you know, we, we just sort of see what they are when they come out in the world. And then that temperament rubs up against life. It rubs up against parenting and parent, our parents' personalities, our teachers' personalities, our pastors' personalities, the rules and laws, our culture, our beliefs, our values, all of those things sort of rub up against that temperament. And a kiddo learns over time which versions of my resources help me feel the most safe in the context of my environment, right? And and what are the tools that I use to create safety? And, And then what happens as kiddos is we sort of in adolescence, so like your kid's age, Cindy, they're they're sort of like starting to grind in their personality. Mm -hmm. And then preteen and teen happens where they're like, sort of defending against it. Like, don't tell me what to be. Don't tell me what to do. It's this like ego protection around these tools make me feel really safe. Please don't take them away from me. And then they become sort of habitual in our twenties where we go to college or whatever we do after school. And we've sort of aren't paying attention to those habits anymore. They become part of our subconscious and we sort of forget what we're doing, but they our brain is like, this, this works, let's keep doing this. And so it's often this part of life where we get jobs or we have a spouse or we start to have kids where we recognize the limitations in those patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our partner has a different personality. We start butting heads and we have to grow and shift and evolve to be in the world in a different way. And so that core construct never changes. That's always sort of the seed that root birthed the tree, but the tree gets bigger. And the the Enneagram model has a circle on the outside of it, if you've ever noticed that. Mm -hmm. And that circle represents what we call the law of one. And it's all types are connected. And it's a reminder that I am all of these types. I just learned that this type served me best in this way. But when I'm in the present moment, when I am, and parenting is the perfect place to be in the present moment, right? Because kids demand it from us. Um, When I'm in the present moment, I don't actually probably look like any type at all. I'm using all of these tools and resources and behaviors. So yes, we do evolve and expand. Mm, We just determine what's no longer serving us. So this, I'm thinking a lot about the surfacing of reparenting that's happening Mm -hmm. now and where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk around recognizing various different mechanisms that we adopted as children that helped us get acceptance, that helped us with belonging, Mm -hmm. approval, that we bring into our adult worlds that 
we recognize now aren't serving us, especially when it comes to our parenting styles. And so Mm -hmm. is that what you're talking about where we go and we have to reevaluate and basically find a new way of working with our number? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, because we sort of narrow and fixate, we underdevelop these other tools, right? So for me, sitting at type seven, I'm in this head center. I'm very competence oriented. My emotional regulation was excessively underdeveloped. Nobody in my life taught me how to be emotionally expressive, how to, you know, state my needs, how to feel grief or feel hurt, right? I learned people pleasing and compliance in that area. And so as a parent, I learned very quickly that I was emotionally underdeveloped. I learned that as a spouse first, really. (laughs) Um, You know, and so, but going right from recognition to therapy felt like a shock to my nervous system. Like I felt like I was going to die really, literally, it was too much. And so my therapist had the wherewithal to recommend, let's help you practice getting in your body so you understand what safety feels like and know that you can handle all of this emotional processing. And so I think the Enneagram can be a tool to help people understand where they're underdeveloped and what that might trigger as a parent with their kiddos. Oh my gosh. Okay, so this... Is amazing. Let's talk numbers. I'm yeah. so I'm really excited about this. Would you be able to go into a brief description of each of the Enneagram numbers? Mm-hmm. And then as you're describing the numbers, if a person identifies with one or more of the numbers, how do they go about finding their number mm-hmm. and using the information to benefit them moving forward in their lives? Sure. I'll answer the second question first. Um, The typing process is convoluted because so much of modern Enneagram has trying to simplify it. They're trying to turn it into a behavioral model like Myers-Briggs or the DISC assessment. Go on and and take a quiz and this is what you are. Yeah. And it's too complicated for that. So the best Enneagram online test is... And it's the only empirically tested, meaning we put some science behind it and we published the science and it's peer reviewed. So it's been critiqued by people who don't benefit from the science is only 46% accurate. It means it's only 46% reliable and valid. And so I still recommend it, but I encourage people to challenge it, fill in the gaps, right? I have a free typing guide. I can give you the link to it that walks people through how I can consume information. I've got some stuff on my YouTube channel. It's all free where you can watch and think about the what's complicated about it. Books I recommend, that test link, things that you could move through to try to figure it out on your own. And some people have a lot of success in that. I am what you call a counter type. I sit in what we call a social dominant seven. I actually, when I take an online test, test as a nine or a two. It's wrong about me every time. I'm in that 54% that it can't figure it out. And so for those people, you know, you can work with a professional who does typing processes. I am one of those people. I'd make sure they're accredited because there's a lot of people out there who are trying to, you know, 
help folks or, you know, do a lot of reflection, watching, listening, all that kind of thing. Um, and so I've tried to make typing as accessible as possible with panels and videos and education because it can be complex. So I will encourage people to trust themselves, even if it's slow. Erin, you do coaching for corporate. Do you also do individual therapy sessions? I do. Okay. Um, most of my work is one-on-one -on -one coaching with entrepreneurs, with moms, with women who are going through life changes. I work with men and women, which is really fun. It doesn't really matter your role in life. It's really, do you, are you ready to shift into some habits? And that might be more helpful. And I can help build strategies around that for you. Okay. Dive into the numbers. Yeah. So I'm going to do this differently. Most people will start with the numbers and just categorize behavior. And I think that's a misstep because behavior is learned, right? Um, so when we, when we start with, and I'll do them in numeric order, you start with the type one, people often call this type like the perfectionist and we're missing in every type, there are three subtypes. So there's actually 27 Enneagram types, not nine. Wow. Right. Okay. And so when, when <laughs> we say perfectionist, we're only talking about one of those type ones. So I want to talk about the motivation behind all of the types, which helps people connect to the numbers more easily. So the type ones, all three of them, we think about as reformers. These kiddos, because this is where it comes from, these kiddos learn that in some way, shape, or form in their life, they don't feel good enough. They're criticized a lot as a kid, and they learn that I should always be improving. I should always be striving. I should always be trying to... Um, make myself better. I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to be enough. And so I better work really, really hard to be good at it. And it develops into rigidity and perfectionism and the inability to make a mistake and this black and white thinking, because I really have a clear understanding of what is good and not good. And I, and I build a really bad, big habit around constantly reforming or improving. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to have a hard time determining which, what I am. So. <laughs> That's okay. We can help you. The type two learns that in order to get their needs met, they need to meet other people's needs. So we call them the strategic helper. And that I meet your needs, so you meet my needs. There's this huge law of reciprocity with a type two. And they learn to manipulate. And manipulate means to move with skill. It's, we, we, can, we can move with skill in unhelpful ways, and we can move with skill in helpful ways. But these are the people who learn to anticipate your needs, who learn to pay attention, who learn to be a step ahead, learn to do things before you ask but their ego is tied up in your recognition and your appreciation of them being a step ahead. Hmm. I'm listening. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm still, I thought I was a two, but now I'm like, I don't know. Okay. Chrissy, are uh, you, do you find, have you, okay, we'll just keep listening. Who knows, right? <laughs> right. Um, the type three is the type that has learned that in order to get loved or seen or to be valued, they have to earn it. And so they are constantly 
doing and achieving and trying and efforting, they use their effort as a way to get seen, known, or loved. And so we think about them like the achiever, but not all of them want to be the CEO or a rock star on the stage. Vanity is really just a way to say, I want to be seen. And I've learned that in order to be seen, I need to do good things and you need to, and they need to be good things for you. So, so would these be more of like the corporate, corporate leaders? It can be. I work, okay. I actually work with a lot of women who are threes who have learned that they, and they, and they might mistype as a two. They might think they're a two because they do things for people, uh-huh. but they're doing them for the pat on the back, the, you know, the, the gold star, the being seen. Uh-huh. Um, whereas a two is doing them because they know what they're doing is right. So the two is anticipating your need and deciding for you. And there's a prideful quality in it where the three is doing and will shape shift and change themselves based on what they think you want, right? Mm, okay. And then the type four is really concerned with being seen as ordinary or being abandoned. They believe that they are the root of their problem. There's something lacking or missing within them. And so if they are just unique or special or different enough that it'll fill that gap and that you will love them. And so the type four learns to really sit in their suffering and really strive to be this different, special, unique person that will get their being seen, known, and loved that way. Uh, The type five is often overwhelmed as a kiddo. Um, Too much is asked of them too soon. And so they feel like I'm I'm not going to be able to replenish my resources, my knowledge, my competence. And so they learn to hold things. They learn to withhold. It's, you know, think about it like avarice. And in this, they struggle to connect. They struggle to share. They struggle. They have really rigid boundaries around people because people deplete them. And that's the sort of old narrative that they tell. The type six is what we sort of call our certainty seekers. They find safety through being sure about something. So they want to collect a lot of data. They want to ask a lot of questions. They want to be really certain. They want to poke holes in things, go devil's advocate, because they they want to make sure that it's lock solid. And I feel safe when things are, you know, really clear and really short, which is not possible, right? Like in life. And so they develop these sort of worst case scenario, self-doubt, anxiety kinds of patterns because I need to be sure to be safe. Uh, where the type seven is sort of on this other extreme in that instead of sitting in what I'm afraid of, I learn to escape it. I learn to control my, my reality. Um, we think about the seven like um, an epicure or sometimes they're called the adventurer. Um, I think that's too narrow. There's often this need for freedom with the seven. If you limit or constrain me too much, I don't have the ability to solve my own problems and therefore I feel unsafe. So they become sort of opportunistic and into the next thing as a way to create safety. 
And the type eight learns to use power and control as a way to be most safe in the world. And they do it to protect their vulnerability. So oftentimes the type eight is if I'm in charge, if I'm the boss, if I'm the most powerful person in the room, if I have power over, then no one can hurt me. And so I learn to be really direct, be really decisive, be a natural leader, because that'll protect sort of my tenderest pieces. And then the type nine prioritizes comfort. I really need to be comfortable in order to be safe. And to the, the easiest way the type nine learns to be comfortable is to not have needs. If I just take my needs out of the equation and make it about other people always, then I, I'm safe. And not having needs means that I don't have the sort of emotional high highs or low lows. I sort of have this even keel, happy-go-lucky kind of experience around life, but it also means that I just really disassociate from what's true for me. So we can see behaviors around people-pleasing in the nine and the two and sometimes in some of these other types, three or some sevens evens or some sixes, but the real question is why am I doing that? What is it serving for me? How is it protecting me? And that's how we start to tie to type. So fascinating. As you were talking, I felt like I could, what you had said previously about there's a little bit of all of these. And, and I felt that I felt I could identify with each of those, certainly more strongly with some of them than others. That's so interesting. Do you ever meet people and you're like, oh, you're that type? Like, do you, do you ever know immediately when you meet? I don't. And I've learned to not try or guess because behavior is so complex. Yeah. And we can learn things, right? Like I stepped into a corporate career for 17 years and I got really good at follow through and systems and structure. And I can look very one-ish at work, right? And so if you only take my behaviors, you might think that in that context, I look like a one. Whereas, you know, you get me out of my element and I'm tender and shy and sitting in the back of a room and nervous, you might think, oh, she's a six or a nine or something. And so I learned really early on in my career that I just don't know until someone shares it with me. And that's what the typing process allows me to do in a strategic way, see the patterns and tie it together. I've done probably 1,500 typing interviews over the last 12 years. And I can count on one hand the times where we couldn't get to a clear answer. And so it's not my my system. It's not my model. It's my teachers. And it's good. It's really good. It's why I got my PhD because I want to create some validity and reliability around it. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. How long does that process usually take? Is it one hour? hour. Does it an hour? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We have one, well, two last questions. The last question is super fast, but I do want to dive into this because I think it's a really important topic today. You mentioned on your website, you're actively dismantling your privilege, centering justice and liberation for marginalized communities while working hard to create systems and structures that really are for all people equitably. Mm -hmm. How are you using the Enneagram and your work to do this? Yeah, I think this is really important. 
you know, I think a lot of people in 2020 sort of got woken up to the atrocities that happen in oppressive systems. Having exposure in public health, I cognitively knew these things. I didn't know them at an emotional level um, that was a, sort of awoken in me. And the recognition of systemic uh, privilege and what that does. I mean, I'm I'm well educated. I'm white. I'm middle class. I'm a woman. I'm heteronormative. Like I have all of these things that give me an advantage in the world. And being really, really conscious about using that advantage in a way that is more impactful is, um, you know, I, I think about the information about, you know, you, white bodies using their body as a way to protect marginalized communities. And I think about that physically, but I also think about that in a figurative sense too, right? How can I share my knowledge in ways that is, are more accessible, which is why I have a ton of free content on Instagram or YouTube. Um, this work is privileged work and, you know, how do we make it more accessible? If someone can't afford an expensive coach, you know, they can go to my YouTube and my Instagram and get every ounce of my coaching for free, you know, and, and how do we, uh, shift some of our income and, you know, reinvest in our communities and, the Enneagram for me is a tool for social justice because it is a tool of rehumanization. And we have to rehumanize ourselves before we can rehumanize others. And it's disappointing because much of the Enneagram community is rooted in information from a, a sort of white male lens. And so there's some really phenomenal Enneagram practitioners who have different gender identities, have different racial or cultural identities. And I think it's really, really important that we consume information and teaching around identity that goes beyond sort of just this normative um, white experience. And so I'm working really, really hard to embody that for myself and share it um, wherever I can. And, you know, sometimes I screw that up. <laughs> well, we all do, <laughs> to be honest. Everything is a work in progress. When you say rehumanize, can you talk about that just, just really quickly? I'm a little confused on what you mean by that and how the Enneagram helps with that. Yeah, I think the connection to our type is, you know, in that sort of limiting version of ourselves. And so we, we sort of dehumanize and that's what systems do, right? They, they sort of dehumanize. So think about like a, con a concept of being objective, right? If we're more objective, we're less emotional at work. We're asking us to be less human um, when, we're, when we're doing things like objectivity or perfectionism. And so by breaking up with those patterns and those habits, we learn how to be more expressive, more full, more human. Okay. Um, and so how do we reclaim the parts of us that said, hey, Aaron, your emotions are too big for me as a kid, feel less. Um, um, the rehumanizing of me is feeling more. Got it. That's beautiful. 
Erin, what message do you think every mom should hear? You're doing it. It's enough. You're doing enough. It's good enough. I think piece of advice I've ever gotten was if we can just get to the present moment, we have everything we need. And I believe that's true for parents. It's definitely a message that I need to hear is that I'm doing enough. Sometimes a lot. I'm going to say a lot. It doesn't feel like it. So thank you. (laughs) This information was so informative and I have truly enjoyed my time with you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Cindy and Chrissy, you're amazing women. The the world and your community is lucky to have what you're doing. It's really special. Thank you so much, Erin. After chatting with Erin and listening to the episode, I'm still unsure what number I am, but I plan to find a concrete answer. Did you nail your number down? If not, we have provided resources for you in the show notes, and Erin is always available for consults. Here are our three takeaways. Number one, Erin explained that human development and public health are all about understanding behavior and then creating programs, interventions, and solutions that help people manage unhelpful behavior and possibly pivot into what would be considered, quote unquote, healthier behaviors. She said that her work familiarized her with Myers-Briggs, the DISC assessment, strength finders, the color profile, all which are great in categorizing behavior in a certain context. But when the Enneagram was introduced to her, it was the only tool that illuminated the motivation of a behavior and got into the deeper psychology around coping, safety, and what feeling secure means to the individual. It's more than categorizing what we do and more about understanding why we do it. Erin stated, if we can find supportive things around the why, we can actually shift into behavior change with less stress and less emotional, physical agitation. So getting clarity around our Enneagram number can help us also get clarity on the most limited versions of ourselves and the construct of our personality. Erin explained that our type is really how we learned to cope and feel safe as a child. Number two. Erin shared some insights to parenting a child with neurodivergent needs and a child with neurotypical needs. For neurodivergent children, she encourages parents to trust themselves and continue to try various things until you find what combination works best for your child and curate resources and tools. It's a learning curve of trial and error. Stay diligent and continue advocating for your child. Erin said that so much of the information in trauma-informed parenting can be used for neurotypical children as well. As far as knowing the Enneagram number for her children, Erin is definitely watching. However, developmentally, children tend to find their personality construct and get settled into it somewhere between the ages of 7 and 11. She mentioned that kids need to be the ones to determine their types, but... She thinks that what we can do as parents is to hold the big picture and the pattern associated with their number and then parent to the pattern. Regardless of the child's type, Erin said, quote, we can support the pattern and find some tools and resources in those areas, end quote. Number three, Erin mentioned that determining your Enneagram number is too complicated for regular online quizzes. She said that the only science-backed peer-reviewed and empirically tested Enneagram online test that she considers the best is only 46% accurate, meaning it's only 46% reliable and valid. She encourages people to use it, but also fill in the gaps with other materials. 
She has tried to make typing yourself, finding your number, as accessible as possible with panels, videos, education, and book recommendations, along with lots of free content on her Instagram and YouTube station, because it can be complex determining your number, but highly beneficial. Bye bye, friends. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you. Thank you.